each Australian. Today we're doing the nun's uh, priest tale, another one of the all-star uh, tales, and one that most interestingly, to my mind, uh, Chaucer uses as a vehicle to deploy a kind of <coughs> Ars Poetica. The Ars Poetica, as you know, is the title of a well-known poem by, uh, uh, by Horace, in which he writes about how to write poetry. And it's quite surprising, but this is the most literary of Chaucer's tales, as I'll point out if you didn't see it um, the uh, first time. It's worth meditating on this a little bit, it seems to me, because the formal genre of the nun's priest tale is perhaps the simplest form of literary allegory that we might imagine. That is to say, the beast fable made familiar by Aesop. And in fact, the story is one of Aesop's fables. That is, he has a fable uh, along these same lines. You probably, if you don't know the Aesop one, you may know the one by, in French literature, by La Fontaine, who also has a little collection of moralized poems, which he calls fable, uh, little fables. And the moral of this story is pretty easy, and it's interpreted at the end as beware of flattery. In La Fontaine, it's about a uh, the, the slightly different. Uh, uh, it's about a fox uh, and a uh, crow. There's a piece of cheese lying in the middle of the road. The crow grabs it, and it flies up to the telephone pole. And so far as they had telephone poles in the 17th century, uh, a tree, a tall uh, a post, and is about to consume the cheese. And the, uh, the uh, fox, who's very much like all foxes, very wily and so on, starts flattering. So I said, oh, just before you eat cheese, why don't you sing us a song you sing? So very beautifully, uh, que vous êtes beau, que vous chantez bien, and can't overcome that flattery of the moment, opens his mouth, you know, the noise the crows actually make is not beautiful, caw, 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 and down falls the cheese, showing that you ought not to become the victim of flattery. That, at a very simple level, at the simplest possible level, is also the meaning of the nun's priest tale. But as we'll see, the language that is invoked at the end of the tale is the language of scriptural exegesis, pockets of fruit, and let the chaff be stilla, that seems to suggest there must be some deeper uh, meaning, perhaps even than the one that I pointed out. Yet this is one of the uh, uh, tales that is richly illuminated both by its teller and by its placement within its fragment. How is it illuminated by its teller? It seemed to me that the analogy here is pretty obvious. The teller of the tale is the nun's plural priest. That is to say, he is a confessor who is traveling 
along with a group of nuns. This situation need not be in and of itself morally suspect, but Chaucer makes it so uh, by the way that Terry Bailey talks about the narrator as being a real stud uh, and so on. And he then tells a tale about a rooster who has in his obvious uh, uh, harem kind of situation a large number uh, of uh, hens. So that there's that kind of uh, uh, an uh, analogy. More interesting, or more deeper at least, is the way that the tale might be illuminated by its setting within its fragment because it comes at the very end of the monk's tale. Most of the tales that we're reading were not reading, uh, most of the tales that we're not reading were not reading simply because we don't have time. But there are one or two that we're not reading because I want you to continue to love Chaucer. Uh, and the monk's tale is a really gloomy, gloomy tale. It's one that actually is cut off by the audience uh, itself. Notice on page 252, you get the rubric, which is, of course is uh, it's in the manuscript. It is scribal, that says, here stinteth the connect the, uh, the monk of his tale. Here the uh, knight interrupts the monk and gets him to quit telling his tale. So he, he quits uh, in medius race. Please remember that word stinteth, okay? Because it means to cut off or let's change the subject, something of that sort. Now you can see from the stanzaic nature, if you just kind of look at the back into the monk's tale, you can see that it's one of these that Chaucer had written uh, in his uh, Rhyme Royal stanza. This clearly suggests to me that he had it in another form, sort of in his top drawer. That is to say that it's probably like the clerk's tale, maybe like the knight's uh, tale, something that he'd been working on independently and now puts it into the Canterbury tale. Well, what is the monk's tale? Collection of tragedies that in medieval lingo were called de casubus tragedies. Casus in Latin meaning a fall or a decline. Therefore, what a de casubus tragedy is, is about somebody who started out very well and ended up uh, in uh, real trouble. This is not unrelated, actually, if you think about it, to the famous definition of tragedy by Aristotle. According to Aristotle, a tragedy is a subject of a certain magnitude. It really annoys me that when tra uh, Aristotle says something like that, tragedy uh, is a subject matter of a certain magnitude. Everybody goes, ooh, God, that's profound. Let's write that down in a book. If I were to tell you that uh, tragedy is a subject matter of a certain magnitude, you'd just wonder what in the world I was talking about. Uh, I think what he means is it has to be serious. It, it has to be a serious subject. 
it has to be dealing with somebody serious. In his uh, definition, you have to be dealing with a prince or a king or someone, you know, uh, he, he's looking at Oedipus Rex and other uh, 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 dramas of that kind in which you're dealing with aristocrats who uh, fall. Uh, and uh, that person has to start out in high degree and end up uh, ruined. He added a special dimension to that, as you know, the special contribution made by Aristotle to tragic theory was the idea of amartia. That is the word which in the Greek New Testament gets translated as sin, and it, uh, in pre-Christian times does mean some kind of moral flaw, tragic flaw, uh, or fault, uh, which legitimates, philosophically speaking, the fall of this uh, great person. Well, the knight starts out at the beginning of it all, he starts out with the fall of Lucifer. That's even, you know, before the creation of Adam and Eve. He then turns to the archetypal De Cassibus tragedy, which is the tragedy of Adam. I mean, here is somebody who, was, who started out in the highest possible estate, lord even of paradise, certainly falls through a uh, hamartia uh, into uh, disaster. And then he runs through lots of legendary characters, historical characters from antiquity, uh, biblical uh, characters, and it looks as though he's going to be going on forever when the knight says, Ho! quoth this Kinnick, Good sir, no more of this. Yehan, uh, that Yehan said is ricked enough, e with, and much or more, for little heaviness uh, is ricked enough to much of folks. I think that we don't need uh, a whole lot more of tragedy. A little bit of tragedy will go a long way. Then the next comment is that I don't like this story because in it there is no gamma. Now, quite clearly, it seems to me that what's being invoked are the categories of sentence and solace. And where is the solace in the monk's tale? Is the point of all this. <laughs> but cunningly, apparently too cunningly for most readers of, of Chaucer, this stinting of the, uh, of the monk's tale comes at a very particular point. For on 251, the last tale before he gets cut off is the tale of King Croesus of Lydia. And the story is this. This is the same Croesus who gives us the you know, expression as rich as uh, Croesus. Uh, he is magnificently wealthy beyond uh, all belief. But he comes to an end in the following uh, way. He had a dream. King Croesus had a dream. And in this, the uh, great god Jupiter, king of the gods, reigned, uh, uh, washed him. And then Apollo, uh, dried him off with a towel. And he was going around, boy, this is a pretty good uh, dream. And he goes to his daughter, whose name is Fanny, said, I just had the greatest dream that shows I'm even going to be richer than I am now. And he told her the dream, and she said, oh, oh, Dad, this is a really bad dream. The interpretation of this dream is 
that you will be hanged uh, on a gibbet, the rain will fall on your dead body, this is where Jupiter Washington is, and the sun will then dry out your corpse. That's Apollo. Now, he didn't like that interpretation of his dream. He wanted an optimistic interpretation of the dream. And so he said, oh, no, no, I'm sure you're absolutely wrong about this. But what actually happened to him, as the text says, is that the dream was fulfilled according to the uh, interpretation of the daughter. Now, there is a little paradigm here that then gets played with uh, in the nun's priest tale. The most obvious example of this are the stories that involve Cassandra. Cassandra of the royal Trojan family, who is the great prophetess, but whose role in history and literature is to tell the truth that nobody wants to hear and therefore to be denied uh, and uh, rejected. Chaucer does this brilliantly in the Troilus, which you're going to be reading next, because Cassandra actually is the sister of Troilus. And Troilus has a very significant dream uh, in that needs interpretation. And remember that we've already seen that dream almost equals text, and that the interpretation of dream almost means the interpretation of a problematical or a contested text. And she interprets it in a very negative, very pessimistic way that he doesn't want to hear. But as it turns out, her, uh, her, her uh, interpretation of it is right. Now I'm making a little collection of these. Maybe I want to write about this even sometime, because it is a recurrent topos that I see in medieval literature of the woman, a woman interpreter. And of course, according to medieval theory, this ought to be leading us to trouble, like we get with the interpretation from the wife of Bath. A woman interpreter who correctly uh, interprets something for a man, a male figure, who ought to have better sense, but who then rejects it. Now you can see that this is exactly the pattern uh, played with, of course that you get in the uh, nun's priest tale. At the center of the nun's priest tale, at the very beginning of it, there is a contested dream. Uh, the woman has one interpretation. The man has another. In this, the, the chick and the, and the rooster. Uh, and, and in this case, the valences are reversed. But you can see that he's doing uh, the same uh, kind of uh, thing. Please, they say to the monk, tell us something uh, nicer. He, he's sort of sore now. He's going to take his marbles and go home. If you don't like what I'm telling you, get somebody else to tell uh, a, a, a tale. And Harry Bailey turns to this uh, priest, <coughs> the nun's priest, come near thou priest, come hither thou Sir John, at the top of page 253, tell us switch a thing, as may were hurt as glada, they bleeth, though that thou read upon a jada, what though thine horse they both a fool and lane, if they will serve they reckon not a bane, look thine hurt be Muria evermore. Please tell us something happy. Reintroduce some uh, mirth or uh, solace into all this very, very heavy uh, sauntance. And he's called Sir John. 
Uh, I have particular reason, of course, to be rather sensitive about the uses of the word John uh, in the English language. And they mean, the word means, a toilet, uh, the customer of a prostitute. Uh, in the Middle Ages, it meant uh, a sort of nondescript priest. I mean, it's not, uh, it's not a very flattering uh, 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 phrase. So the, there's a, some sort of question mark that is uh, hovering uh, over the uh, nun priest. But he's going to tell us a good, uh, a good tale. Now, notice that I mean, we, when we describe the tale, we say it's about chickens. I do. Chickens, chicken sex chicken onero criticism, chicken hermeneutics, chicken exegesis, chicken laxatives, and so on. But what the narrator says it's about is a povra widwa, a povra widwa, Sumdale state in Aja, uh, was dwell, was squealum dwelling in Narwa Kataja, beseed a grove. Now, it's, of course, in this widow woman's barnyard that the activity uh, is going to take place, but it might be a hint that what we want to think about is the relationship of this plot to uh, the story of the, uh, of the... In the back of your book, of course, there's all sorts of bibliography promiscuously distributed throughout the uh, footnotes in the back of the book, but there's one essay that I've always found interesting which is by uh, Charles Dahlberg, and he gives an allegorical interpretation that goes along uh, these lines that would link this tale to the Friar's Tale and the, uh, in, and the Sumner's Tale. One thing we know about foxes in the Middle Ages is that they very frequently were an emblem of the friars. That's partly because the fox has a coat that looks like a Franciscan friar's habit, you know, it's that uh, color, but it's also because friars, like the one in, uh, uh, like the one in the uh, Sumner's Tale, are very fox-like and clever and, uh, and uh, uh, disingenuous and uh, uh, so forth. The old French word for uh, fox was goupil, G-O-U-P-I-L, but the modern French word, as you probably know, is a reynard. Reynard was actually a literary character who shows up in medieval folklore, a fox who is terribly clever, tricky, disingenuous, and so on, and uh, uh, who is often, incidentally, uh, a friar figure. So Dahlberg's interpretation of this, and I'm just tossing it out, uh, I don't think it's of any earth-shaking significance, but he thinks that the old widow is a traditional figure of the church. Certainly, this is uh, uh, sound in the sense that the, the church was often described as a widow. Why? She is the bride of Christ, but at the moment, Christ is not on earth, and she is awaiting this kind of return. She's poor. She's you know, uh, dependent upon the charity of others and so on. So that if this figure is a figure for the church, then, says Dahlberg, what is being talked about here may very well be that competition between the regular clergy, the friars, and the secular clergy, the ordinary parish priests, which we saw 
a version of in the Sumner's tale, because there is no question, either in Christian iconography, or it seems to me uh, also uh, in, uh, in this story, that our, our, our rooster in this tale is a very sacerdotal figure, very priest-like uh, uh, priest figure. On the tops of medieval churches, there was usually a weather vane or a, a wind indicator uh, in the form of a rooster. Actually, you still find this even in the Protestant churches up in New, uh, New England, although I don't think they understand the iconography of it. Uh, that is to say, this was an image coming out of early Christian iconography of Christ. Now, why is this? You may have heard of the book called Physiologus. That's the medieval title. The modern term is the bestiary, in which beasts, animals, are all given allegorical moral interpretation. And uh, the rooster was associated with Christ because he leaps up in the morning uh, on top of the dung heap and says, cock-a-doodle-doo. And this was an image of Christ. Uh, <laughs> when Mr. Moxley's telephone is not ringing, he is throwing it around the room. Uh, anyway, uh, there's no, there, there can't be any question, it seems to me, that there's some sort of uh, sacerdotal connection here. Uh, notice that the singer uh, is, uh, it says that his uh, singing sounds like the organ of a church uh, uh, or the abbey orlogia, the regularity of it is like the regularity of the clock uh, in the uh, abbey and uh, so on. Uh, so that seems, uh, that, that seems pretty good to me. Take a look at 254. He is a, he's a marvelous uh, uh, rooster. Uh, he, he, he says, his beal was black at line 4051. His beal was black, and as the jet it shone, leak azure where his leg is in his tone. See that in, in Middle English, toe was one of those words like goose. The plural, uh, you have one toe but two tone. I think that's very good. Leak azure where his leg is in his tone. His nail is sweeter than the lily fluor, and leaked the burned gold with his couleur. Beautiful image of a very fancy uh, rooster. This gentle had in his governance seven hennas for to don all his plaisances, which were his sisters and his paramours. There's a little bit of language out of the Song of Songs. Um, this is just one of many, many sort of liturgical e echoes. Uh, my love, uh, my sister, and uh, so on. He is of absolutely... Uh, beautiful, um, and he's this marvelous uh, singer. But switch a joy it was to hear him sing when he sings with, uh, with uh, when Chanticleer sings with uh, Pertolota. But switch a joy it was to hear him sing when that the brick the song began to spring and swayed a chord. Me leaf is farin in Honda. It was really marvelous to hear them sing this duet called My Lover Has taken off. That really is how I would translate that, uh, has uh, left. And then you get a great remark by the nun's priest that is worth its weight in gold. For in those days, 
I'm told that birds and beasts could talk and sing. My great professor, D.W. Robertson, who was the, one of the first people really to uh, make the claim and try to make it stick, that Chaucer, for all the surface realism that you have in the Canterbury Tales, is an algorithm. That is, he's also writing at a second level. And, so on. Uh, and uh, when he ran into static about this, I heard him say one time at an academic meeting, he says, well, you have two choices. Either Chaucer wrote allegory, or in the 14th century, birds could talk. <laughs> you know, and uh, that really is the uh, choice you have. I mean, all allegory means is saying one thing to mean another. It doesn't have to be a great covert uh, complex allegory like the one that uh, Dahlberg is pointing out. It just means that there is a moral sense that underlies this. But in, in, in such a time, the uh, uh, beast and bird is could uh, spake and sing. So right from the very beginning, we seem to be introduced to ideas that we've already seen before, text, the necessity for uh, interpretation, uh, the difficulties of, uh, the and, and, and difficulties of uh, in, in interpretation. Uh, he's had a bad night. Uh, Herta uh, dare, she says to him, what aileth you, ye groan in this manner, ye been a very slaper, fee for shama. And he answers that he's had a bad dream. This is the top of column two, page 254. For me swaven, wretch erect, and kept me booty out of failed prison. Me met, I dreamed, how did he roam it up and down within or yard, where that he saw a beast, I saw an animal, was leek and hooned, like a dog, and wad had mod arrest upon me body, and wad had me dead. He was going to kill me and take, my, take me away. His color was betwixt yellow and red, and tipped was his towel, and both his eras with black. Unleak the remnant of his hair. It's a very good description of a fox, and everybody here has seen one, and, but he has never seen one, apparently. And he had a dream, and in this dream, a fox came into the yard with intention to capture him and carry him off. Now, this sounds to me pretty much as though it was a right-on dream. That is, that it was a predictive dream to which he ought to have paid attention, since that's exactly what does happen uh, in the nun's brief tale. Uh, but, of course, we have to have a great debate about it. Um, and we do. We have one of the funniest uh, literary debates uh, that you will uh, ever uh, run into. Because the chick, uh, Pertolota now says, oh my God, you mean you're afraid of dreams? I want a real rooster. You know, one who uh, doesn't have a fear of uh, dreams. Uh, it says, uh, we all desirin, if it make to bay, to han a husband's hearty, wheeze and fray, and secret. Ever heard those lines anywhere before? They're identical with what the wife of Bath puts into, uh, the, uh, into the explanation of what it is that women want most. So what women want most is what this uh, chicken wants most, what this hen wants most, and that is a very bold husband who is not going to be 
afraid uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, of dreams. <coughs> well, now this introduces, in a very strange way, this introduces one of the most complex literary discussions that we find in all uh, of the, the uh, Canterbury Tales. And we begin uh, with the question of whether or not dreams can be taken seriously. Sometime just for your amusement, you might look at Chaucer's translation of the Romance of the Rose, because that great poem begins with a very similar discussion. Many people say that in dreams there are only lies. And in the French text, uh, it, it, it makes this wonderful rhyme between songe, songe meaning a dream, and mensonge meaning a lie. This proposes for the literary debate then of the next <laughs> several hundred years, the relationship between truth and a dream. This is a uh, big theme in biblical literature uh, and, uh, and uh, else, elsewhere. <laughs> Are dreams significant is the question. Well, this one turns out to be highly significant, but you can see that there is a debate about it, and it is a rather uh, learned uh, debate. The uh, hen says at line uh, 4130 with a, a, a star, she quotes Cato, lo katun, which was so wees a man, said he not thus, na do no force of dramas. Can't you read in Cato? Anybody remember who Cato is? He's, he's appeared in one earlier tale. Does anybody? You got a valuable prize and an A in the course if you can tell me what this is. But time is running out. One, two, it's the Miller's Tale. And uh, what Chaucer says of this, the, the dumb, the ignorant carpenter in that tale is, he canoe not cartoon, for his wit was rude. Meaning that this Cato book is the McGuffey's 101 reader. This is the absolute introductory book. And this is what the hen is quoting as her authority. She quotes it quite correctly, as a matter of fact. Cato does have a distich saying that dreams are not of any significance. She knows that the uh, origin of this dream is gastronomic. Now, Sir Quoche, when we flay from the Bamas, for God is love as talk some laxity. Just take a laxative uh, and you will get uh, rid uh, of your uh, dreams. But this immediately begins a quite extended uh, debate of uh, dreams. And uh, Chanticleer, of course, has very powerful uh, advocates uh, on his side. And he has them both from the sacred and from the secular realm. To begin with the latter, he invokes the name of the greatest of all dream experts in the Middle Ages. Same one invoked at the beginning of the Book of the Duchess, namely Macrobius, this late pagan uh, commentator uh, on Cicero who wrote something called uh, the commentary on the dream of Scipio. And at the beginning of this, he, he says, there are a distinction of dreams. The first distinction is between dreams that really do have some significance and dreams that don't have any significance and which are caused 
by overeating or something like this. Well, how can you tell the difference between them? He defines what an insomnium would be. The word for dream in Latin is somnium. It's opposite, insomnium, doesn't mean not having a dream, but a nightmare, a dream that has no significance. And he gives the example of an erotic dream, a dream in which the lover dreams of possessing or of losing the object of his desire. Now, of course, that's the entire plot of the Romance of the Rose, so it's rather ironic that it begins by, uh, by uh, invoking uh, Macrobius. But Macrobius says there really are there are various kinds of dreams. There are, for example, the dream called the oraculum, or the oracle. Now, that's a dream in which a very important person, vel etzium deus, or even a god, appears to you and tells you to do something. If you've read the Aeneid, you'll remember that that's exactly the dream that uh, Aeneas has. While he's sort of trapped in this uh, affair, love affair with uh, Dido, uh, actually helping her to build the walls of Carthage, the city that is going to become the historic enemy of Rome. He's doing that instead of getting on with the founding of the Roman Empire. And the god Mercury comes to him in a dream. That is an oracle. There's also the kind of dream that is uh, enigmatic. This is the term that, uh, that uh, uh, Macrobius uses. That is to say that it is an allegorical dream uh, where you see uh, an animal that may stand for a person. The dream that, that Troilus has is that he goes, he's terribly hot. He's trying to get away from the heat. He goes into the shade of the woods, and there he sees on the ground his lover, Crusader, wrapped in the arms of a great white boar, you know, a large pig. Now, that involves a little bit of interpretation. It doesn't involve much interpretation. I think I wouldn't even have to be Cassandra to tell him uh, what happened. But that is an enigmatic dream, one that needs uh, some kind of interpretation. The easiest kind of significant dream is the kind of dream that Chanticleer has, in fact, just had, in which you have a vision of what actually is going to happen. Has anybody here ever had such a dream? I take... Uh, notes on this each year. No, but my mother-in-law, you had one, excellent. My mother-in-law, who is incapable of lying, she is just as wonderful, uh, honest as the day goes woman, had one of these dreams. Uh, they're quite often trivial, but the, the fact that you have them uh, is pretty good. She had a dream that she went into the London Underground, and as she came around the corner to see where the tracks were, there was some sort of hubbub going on over right by the tracks. And uh, when she got over, some uh, businessman had dropped his uh, uh, briefcase down in there. And everybody was saying, well, how are we going to get that out? And he took his umbrella, the umbrella that every English businessman uh, has, and just held it by the other end and used the hook to pick up the umbrella. I mean, to, to pick up the briefcase. The very next day, she walks into the underground, walks around the corner, and that very scene is reenacted. Well. According to Macrobius, that is the most, the easiest, the best, and in a certain sense, uh, the most highly valued uh, predictive dream, and it's the, uh, certainly the kind 
uh, certainly it's the kind uh, that he, he has had. Well, the, uh, <laughs> there's, there's there uh, that the dream is uh, of a significance and it ought to be taken seriously. From the point of view of the argument, Chanticleer wins hands down. He says the dream is significant. She says the dream is insignificant. But something gets in the way of his acting uh, on this uh, dream. And that is over here on page 257, <coughs> headline 3157, uh, when he says, you know, honey, when I look at you and I see the beautiful scarlet red around your eyes, says, I, you know, dreams just don't make any significance. Uh, they don't, just don't have any significance to me. He says, now let us spake of mirth and skint all this, echoing the word that was used for the interruption of the monk's tale. They don't want to hear the monk's tale because that's all sort of bad news. We don't want to hear bad news. We want to hear good news. So, uh, Madam Peritolota, won't you stint uh, all th uh, this? Of, oh, thing God had sent me large a grassa, for when he say the bote of your fossa, ye been so scarlet red about your end, it mocketh all me dreda for today and Once I see your bright r red around your eyes, I don't have any fear, for also sicker as in principio, Mulier est hominis confusio. Madam, the sentence of this Latin is, woman is man is joy, and all his bliss. Oh, 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 oh. Okay, now you get it? You've got a very clerical rooster here. And he's a Latin speaker. And he's not some dumb, monoglot, vernacular chick like the one he's hanging out with here. And so he can tell her, this is a very cruel thing. Okay? The meaning of the phrase, uh, in principio, mulier est hominis confusio, is in the beginning, woman was the downfall of man. What story is being alluded to there? The original tragedy in the monk's tale. That is the story of Adam and Eve. But you get the spirit of this? There's a horrible thing in, uh, in Mencken's history, American, American English. He, he was down in Baltimore, of course. And uh, he, he, he writes about uh, the medical students at, the, at uh, Johns Hopkins who in the gynecology uh, cl uh, classes and so on, their, their patients were all charity cases, mainly ignorant black women from the ghetto there. You know? And these guys would talk these women into giving strange names to their uh, children, like uh, gonorrhea and uh, placenta and so on, and ho, 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 you know, from my male superior educated point of view. This is the way, I think, in which this, it's a very cruel kind of thing for him to be saying, if you see what I mean. But of course, as it turns out, this is exactly uh, what is wrong with uh, Chanticleer, and this is what is going to, uh, wh what is going to, uh, going to happen uh, to, uh, to, to him. Now, the rest of the tale is most surprising, it seems to me, in the uh, extraordinary profundity of its literary and its philosophical themes. You remember, these are talking chickens. The scene is a uh, barnyard, but Chaucer brings in the <laughs> largest philosophical question 
in his tradition, which is the philosophical problem of the freedom of the human will. That is, was this thing destined to happen? Was it destined that Chanticleer would be captured by the fox? It almost sounds ridiculous when you put it this way. Uh, or was there some liberty of the will involved? Now, I, don't, I think by this time in the course, you can see that there's something wrong with the moral values of this particular uh, rooster. Uh, it, it, it gets in the way of his sound interpretation uh, even uh, of uh, sound interpretation uh, even of a, uh, of a text. Uh, but here on uh, the second column of 258, he invokes all the big ones. He said, I can't, uh, debate, I can't debate this with the authority that St. Augustine did, the holy Dr. Augustine or Boas or the Bishop Brad Werdeen, whether that God is worthy forwitting, straineth me natally for to don a thing, natally, Clapey, simple necessite. Do you remember this from the Constellation of Philosophy of Boethius? Simple, conditional necessity. This is the way that, August, that uh, Boethius got around the, the idea that there could be a God who was all-knowing. He knows exactly what's going to happen. But the fact that he knows this does not relieve you of your moral I know you're going to stick beans up your nose. That is going to happen. But the fact that I know it is not what is causing you uh, to do it. The same question <laughs> shows up at the end of book four, just before you get to book five in the Troilus. And one of the really funny things that you're going to watch out for is that both the Troilus and the nun's priest deal with this onera criticism, the interpretation of dreams, but do it in very, very different ways. Here it's entirely comic in the Troilus it seems to me to be uh, in, in entirely uh, tragic. <coughs> the, uh, the, the event, that is to say, the event of this fox coming into a barnyard is hyperbolically, in mock heroic fashion, uh, uh, connected with the greatest tragedy in Western European literature, namely the death of Hector whose body then was dragged seven times around the city, city of Troy uh, by, uh, uh, by Achilles. And one wonders what exactly Chaucer is uh, getting at here. This is why I say it is, in my opinion, his Ars Poetica. He's deploying, giving examples of every style that he has uh, mastered. But perhaps the most extraordinary uh, example of this comes on page 260, in which he talks about the actual moment of the fox uh, entering the barnyard. He says, O destiny, at about the fifth line on the page, O destiny that mayst not been eschewed, alas, that Chanticleer flay for the Bamas, alas, his weef narok denat of dramas, and on a free day fill all this mischance. Such a pity that he ever got out of bed that day. It's such a pity uh, that uh, his wife prevailed in telling him that dreams were not uh, significant. And it's such a pity that this happened on Friday. Now, if you were doing the SATs and they asked you which part of that you know, doesn't seem to fit, I think most of us would say uh, it's the bit about the Friday. Except what day does Friday, what goddess does Friday go with? Uh, what's Vendredi? Vendredi. 
Venus. Okay, and then Chaucer goes on to say this. That was on Venus's day. And it also makes the point that he's a votary of Venus. Why is he a follower of Venus? More for delete than world tumultiplia. I mean, it's almost Catholic uh, catechism uh, language. He is interested in sex. Why? Not for reproduction, but for the pleasure principle, which is what the uh, uh, text says. And he's always been a great servant uh, of Venus. And if you were here, Galfrade, if you were here, you could re really teach me how to write this uh, poem. Now, who is the Galfredus who is being uh, talked about? At line 2247, he is Geoffrey of Van Sof, a great medieval literary theorist who wrote the same book that every medieval theorist has written in every century, that is, it has a title, The New Poetry. Have you noticed that the new poetry is now so old that we probably ought to call it the Paleolithic poetry, but we, you know, like we talk about the new critics and, and, and so forth and so on. Now, in this, in this uh, book, this very pretentious critic, it seems to me, or uh, rhetorical uh, teacher, says this. If, for example, you have a tragic event that falls on Friday, such as the death of King Richard, which actually apparently did happen on a Friday, you can't approach your material without spending a few lines bemoaning Friday. Oh, terrible Friday. How could this possibly be? I don't know if you know the worst poet who ever lived, uh, William McGonagall, uh, and, uh, the, the Scottish poet. He has a poem on the Tay Bridge disaster. There was a famous bridge built over the River Tay, and it collapsed. And he wrote a poem about it called the Tay Bridge Disaster. Oh, silver, oh, beautiful bridge of the Silvery Tay. Your girders would not have given way had they been firmly supported on both sides with buttresses. This is one of, <laughs> this is, this is one of the lines. Now, th this is more or less kind of the pathetic level, all of a sudden, that enters this poem with this uh, with this stuff uh, about uh, with this stuff uh, about uh, Friday, and he then uh, also he talks about the de death of Hector and so on. Uh, it's at this poem, it's at this moment that the fox grabs the rooster and takes him uh, off, and all hell breaks loose. And in fact, we get what are, to me, the most worrying lines in all of world literature, not merely in, in, in Chaucer. In 1381, as you may know, there was something called the Peasant's Revolt. I don't know if that's a very good uh, name for it, but it was a proletarian uprising that uh, was led by somebody named Jack Straw. And he said the, the noise that was made uh, around the, uh, the, the noise that was made when they start chasing uh, after the fox uh, was as bad as that that these rioters made. Certes, hey, Jack, his mene, Namada never shoot his half. When wouldn't any Fleming kill a terrible, terrible line. Fleming is, of course, a race name. This means anybody who comes from Mr. Vanderell's part of the country, uh, it's sort of like the uh, Vietnamese uh, boat people, I mean, the, the shrimp fishermen down in uh, Louisiana or something. They're so damn good at this that the locals get uh, mad at them. The Flemish were great weavers, and uh, 
they came over to England, and whenever uh, economic conditions got bad and the local Anglo-Saxon peasants wanted to riot, they would go kill a few Flemings. There's something in the Lanarkas Chronicle that says, and we killed all the Flemings, namely those who cannot say bread and cheese, but say brod and cake. Like imagine some Belgian you know, ancestor of mine lined up against the wall with a sword at his gullet, shown a piece of cheese. Kaiser, that he gets it. The highest seriousness mixed with the, uh, the, 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 the deepest comedy. He, he gets out of it in the way that we would expect him to get out of it. Uh, that is to say, he turns against the fox, the slattering cleverness that got him into uh, trouble, uh, and he does uh, get away. But the tale is not yet over. And uh, one of the most brilliant scenes, I don't have time to read it, is all the animals and so on chasing after the fox and, and, the, uh, and, and the cock. But look what happens right at the very end of the tale. The nun's priest says, addressing you, obviously, but yea, that holding this tale of folly as of a fox or of a cock and hen, talk of some morality, good men, for St. Paul saith that all that written is to our doctrine is he writ with pockets of fruit and let the chaff be silly. That's the heavy duty uh, language of scriptural interpretation. And he seems to be applying it to this beast uh, fable. If you look in the back of the book, you'll see reference to another article, an article by Stephen Manning, which looks into this and finds it very problematical. According to Manning, he thinks that, the nuns, that what is being made fun of here is the propensity of medieval preachers to try to make anything religious, you know, to take any secular story and claim that you could find in it a religious meaning. But certainly what the language seems to suggest is that we are to apply to this at once most simple and most complicated of Chaucer's uh, tales that we have to bring to it uh, the expectations that we would bring uh, to the reading of the uh, sacred uh, text. Boy, Chaucer is an author who has fantastic range. I don't just mean range within the Canterbury Tales, but he can write a tale that appeals to all different sort of people. This is the one that gets in the textbooks that they teach in high school because young people like to read the story uh, at the level of the beast fable. At the same time, this is a story that raises, if I'm right, the most complicated theoretical questions about the art of poetry uh, that Chaucer is uh, able to, uh, to achieve. Uh, and, of course, there's a lot more stuff in it than I've been able to get at, as you, as you, you will see. But that seems to me to be a very uh, remarkable achievement. Good.